0: This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. On the 18th of November 2016, the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law hosted its third annual conference entitled From Refugee Emergency to Protracted Exile The Role of Time in International Protection. This is a recording of the third presentation in the session on Time and Refugee Status Determination, chaired by Farid Varres Special Counsel Fragomen. This presentation by Professor Richard Bryant and Dr Belinda Liddell from the School of Psychology at UNSW is entitled Pathways to Refugee Trauma Recovery. What does the psychology and neurobiological research tell
1: us? What we know from many of the studies that have been done is that about one in three refugees can experience a significant mental health problem. Now, the good news is two-thirds actually aren't, and we need to keep that in mind. But one in three is a phenomenal figure, because if you look at any national surveys around the world in non-refugee populations, the rates of mental distress are incredibly less than that. So we are talking about a very significant problem. And when we're talking about 60-odd million people who are displaced, um, this is an absolute number um, of of people who are requiring mental health assistance. In terms of what are the sort of problems, I'm not going to go into detail, but essentially depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, suicidality. These are probably the most common ones, and these where the prevalence rates are extremely high. Now, how we understand why do these problems occur? If we go back to those three phases I just mentioned, we know that very often it is the trauma itself is going to lead to many of the mental health problems. We know the major predictor of mental health problems is, for example, torture. The more torture I have, the more depression, PTSD, and anxiety I will have. But we also know that it will be compounded by the um, displacement uh, experience. We know that, for example, being in a detention centre will markedly increase the odds of you having mental health problems. Um, but we also know that a significant predictor over and above that are the post migration stressors, be it um, discrimination, unemployment, fear of being sent home, etc. Now, we also know that, and this is a critical component that many people forget, it's how I'm responding to the post migration scenario. So this is where most refugees are having to deal with it, be it in a a nearby country or in a far-flung country from their home. It's what I've been through prior to this event. It's the torture, it's the war, etc. What that impact has has on me is going to have a huge impact on how I'm responding to the current environmental stresses that I have. Now, this is the the key take-home message I want to make. And that is, what do we actually know about... How do refugees, why do refugees respond the way they do from a psychological perspective to their experience? Why do they have much higher rates of mental health problems than mainstream populations? And critically for people like us, why do they respond much more poorly to mainstream evidence-based treatments than, other, than non-refugees? These are critical key issues that we're trying to deal with. What is one of the most disturbing issues for us is if we ask the question, what do we know about these mechanisms? What do we know about what promotes resilience, what promotes the mental health problems, what promotes response to treatment? We just don't know. And it's an interesting phenomenon in my field. There there is very, very little work going on in this field to try and understand what are the mechanisms. We have made great advances in the non-refugee world in the last 20, 30 years we have made very, very little in the refugee world. And that's really what's driving what we're doing. We're trying to understand um, what those mechanisms are. Now, in a minute, I'm going to ask uh, Belinda to talk about one aspect of that, the neurobiological work, which many of you might think, what does this have to do with um, the practical application of helping refugees? Well, let me explain sort of why we're doing what we're doing. We've heard that the refugee is a a problem, is a global problem. Now, one of the major problems facing many of us is if we're going to deal with the tens of millions of of refugees who have mental health problems, it's an issue of scale. Nowhere in the world um, does anybody have the health infrastructure, the mental health services, to actually be able to deal with these numbers of people. Certainly in the Middle East they don't, certainly in Africa, certainly in Asia, and they don't even have it in Western Europe at the moment in terms of the scale of the refugees that they're dealing with. Now, we actually have very good treatments for most of the disorders that refugees are experiencing, um, but they are expensive, they require specialists, they're time-consuming, and they are just simply not sustainable in a low-income, poor, resourced um, setting, which is where most refugees are. Now, if you take a setting like this, this is the Zatari... Um, refugee camp on, in northern Jordan, near uh, the Syrian border. Um, it's uh, in a better shape than it was, but back when I was there, it held about 140,000 Syrians. Now, if you go into a place like this, there's, these people are fresh from over the border, from war, how do you actually address the mental health of a third of those people? It is very, very challenging to do. When we deal with the Syrians, and this is just what I'm going to focus on to justify sort of why the work we're doing, we know that many of them are exposed to horrendous experiences. But how do we come up with programs that are actually going to address the mental health problems, given the numbers of people, the millions of people who need help? Well, what we've been doing here at UNSW is we've partnered with WHO over the last couple of years to try to come up with mental health interventions that we can actually say are informed by the evidence from what we have from work that has been done in mainstream populations, but how can we simplify it? How can we destructure it, if you like, so we can actually train local people, in this case Syrian refugees, in a way that we can impart the basic mechanisms? And this is why we're looking at mechanistic research. If we can identify what the mechanisms are that are going to promote resilience, can we then boil those down, and teach those to local people in an affordable, scalable way to actually increase um, the mental health in a way that is achievable in these sort of settings. Now, we have come up with a program. We've actually done a couple of large trials, not with refugees, but we've done them in uh, Kenya with gender-based violence. We've done them in Pakistan with victims of terrorism. And we've actually got very good results in controlled trials. So now what we're doing is... We're actually uh, linking with some major agencies, thanks to a very large grant we've had from the EU, where we're actually trying this program and adapting it across Syrian populations, across the Middle East, um, across uh, Europe. And what we're trying to do is actually identify, can we actually use Syrian refugees and use other modes of delivery to actually get evidence-based interventions that are based on the mechanisms that we know are going to promote resilience, can we actually get it to the r- refugees who need it in a way that's scalable when you're dealing with hundreds of thousands or millions of people? So these are the countries in which we're working in, and so we're using a lot of different modalities. But the point of it really is that we can't do this unless we understand what, is, what are the mechanisms that are actually going to promote this kind of change. So I'm going to stop there and I'm going to ask um, Belinda to talk a little bit about just one aspect of this mechanistic research, which is the, the neural aspect. Okay. Thanks, Richard.
0: So, as Richard has said, it's really vital that we build an evidence base for, of the mechanisms by which refugee trauma impacts on psychological health. So, one of the major studies that we're conducting is harnessing cutting-edge neuroimaging or brain imaging technologies, known as functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging, or fMRI, to better understand the experiences of traumatised refugees. And in this study, we have been asking the question, how does refugee trauma, with a focus on torture, affect the emotional brain? So we know that around one in five resettled refugees are torture survivors. And surveys conducted amongst recently arrived uh, migrants in Germany suggest that this number is actually higher, around one in f- two in five people. And torture has a significant psychological and physiological impact. We know that torture exposure is the single biggest predictor of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, amongst refugees. Now, torture... Um, survivors have difficulties with a range of various things, but a core focus so far in literature has been that often they have difficulties in regulating and managing strong emotional responses. They have problems with engaging socially and interpersonal trust and also um, have developed often some negative self-concepts about either themselves or the world around them because of the experiences they've been through. And today I'm going to be focusing more on the emotional side of things. So um, I promise not to get too technical here, but I'd like to just paint a little bit of a picture about how we understand post-traumatic stress responses in the brain. So PTSD is considered to be governed by a breakdown in the fear circuits of the brain. The dominant model is that PTSD results in the frontal part of the brain, and that's shown here in pink, to go offline, And fail to control or regulate parts of the brain responsible for the expression of fear or our fight-flight responses. Some of these regions are shown here in orange. And this can result in various types of PTSD symptoms, such as feeling over-aroused, not being able to sleep, not being able to concentrate on a task for more than a few minutes at a time. Also, it might involve um, experiencing distressing memories of past traumas that invade or interfere with normal thoughts, and these can be very debilitating for people. And this model is built on evidence from single incident trauma survivors, such, such as an assault or a motor vehicle accident, and also military trauma. But what about refugee or torture survivor trauma? Torture might be differentiated by a number of key factors from other types of trauma. First up, it's interpersonal. We know that interpersonal-related traumas are much more damaging to mental health than non-interpersonal traumas, such as natural disasters. It is often cumulative. Torture often involves exposure to many different types of individual torture-related traumas, and which often takes place within a context of other major traumatic events, um, occurring to the self, to family members, or to community. Torture exposure is often sustained and protracted. Torture can also be categorised as uncontrollable, and these un- exposure to uncontrollable stress and trauma can have specific impacts on the brain. Also, refugees, as Richard said, are dealing with a range of different post-migration living difficulties, which can also affect mental health. Torture survivors from culturally, are from culturally diverse groups, which also appears to affect how the brain processes fear and emotion, even in trauma. We know that each of these factors impacts on the representation of trauma or post-traumatic stress symptoms, but collectively, we don't really know the effects. And this is why research is vital and what we aim to investigate in our study. So in our um, current project, we have 80 participants from a refugee background. Um, A a majority are males, and the average age was 38. And you can see that um, our participants are from a range of different backgrounds and country of origin. Now... Our sample um, has been exposed to 11, on average, types of traumatic events. And this is just not in terms of number of traumas, but just different types of categories they've been exposed to. So this represents a highly traumatised sample. And 38% of our group are torture survivors. The length of time in Australia is a wide range, from um, a couple of months over to 30 years. So, in terms of our study procedure, we uh, work very closely with STARTS, which is the New South Wales Service for the Treatment and Rehabilitation of Torture and Trauma Survivors, based here in Sydney. And they refer participants to the project, to their clients for the project, as well as we rely on people who are interested from the community to take part in our research. And we follow a multimodal approach with a two-session interview designed to build trust with participants, to hear their story. We work with health interpreters, as well as to document the extent of their current symptoms. And in the third step, participants complete an fMRI scan while participating in a number of different emotional and cognitive tasks. And the one I'll be telling you about today is a face perception task. It's a very simple task where we show participants pictures of people expressing fear and also people expressing neutral expressions and as a baseline. And this is a well-evidenced task to engage the fear systems and circuitry of the brain in a, uh, a transient type way. So if the standard trauma model holds up for torture to survivors, we would expect greater activation in fear centres of the brain when processing fear faces. But what we see is quite different. We actually observe greater activity in the frontal regions of the brain, as you can see here in this picture, and not in the fear centers. And critically, the amount of activity in this frontal brain region was related to the severity of the trauma or the torture experienced. We also found that this was significantly more active in the torture survivor group compared to those without torture experiences. And this interacted with overall level of trauma exposure. And also, really importantly, these findings were significant when controlling for current levels of post-traumatic stress symptoms. And what does this actually mean? What does it mean to engage the frontal brain exclusively during fear processing? In the trauma literature, such a neural profile has been associated with more of a flattened arousal, more emotional withdrawal and numbing, and difficulties around understanding the self and the world. This does suggest that torture might have a long-term effect on the fear systems of the brain. And this impact is potentially related to the severity of torture exposure and the effect is irrespective of current levels of mental health symptoms. This could actually make post-trauma adjustment and the recovery period quite difficult. And it does suggest that essentially torture might be rewiring the brain, undermining the neural systems for processing something that is threatening. This sort of reaction of emotional withdrawal might be adaptive during the torture exposure itself, but may present difficulties down the track and in recovery. So this study will enable us to map a neural model of the long-term influence of torture exposure on fear processing And be important information for guiding the treatment and rehabilitation for torturous survivors. I just wanted to um, talk um, in the last few minutes quickly about um, some other work that we're doing trying to understand the mechanisms around settlement. We know that some refugees adapt well, while others don't. But we don't fully understand why. And why don't we know this? Well, no-one in the world has really undertaken longitudinal assessments of refugees. And this is really important because we know that psychological states fluctuate over time in accordance with various environmental influences. For example, what are the flashpoints that cause mental health symptoms to worsen or to improve? Might it be a success in gaining employment? Might a flare-up in the country of origin um, impact on um, psychological health? Could it be a change in visa status? Could it be a loss of loved one? We don't really know what those processes are, and we don't know why. So at the Refugee Trauma Recovery Program, um, we have commenced a new study called the Refugee Adjustment Study, alongside um, my colleague, Dr Angela Nickerson, who is the director of RTRP. Initially, it was a pilot study. And we were fortunate to obtain funding from the Australian Research Council, alongside our partners, the Australian Red Cross and Settlement Services International, to expand the project. this study really aims to investigate the factors that contribute to healthy adaptation and settlement outcomes. That is, what are the resilience trajectories amongst refugees living in Australian communities and the factors that might contribute to reduced or poorer settlement outcomes? Some of these factors might be situational, such as post-migration living difficulties. Some might be mental health or functionality factors. It could be social factors, such as social capital, or psychological factors, such as um, perceived self-efficacy. In terms of our method, we track um, participants for three years. And participants complete an online survey for five five time points every six months. And we have it available in various languages, in English, Arabic, Farsi, and Tamil. And it's open to adults over 18 who have arrived in Australia since 2011 and is open nationwide. And we really hope that this information will help inform service provision, how to support refugees and asylum seekers at difficult phases of the settlement journey, to bolster resilience, and to guide the development of simple tools to assist refugees to cope with stressful circumstances. I just wanted to share a little bit of um, data from our pilot, the pilot phase of our project. We ask people around to give um, a sense of how much of a... Uh, uh, what, uh, the size of a particular living difficulty for them at the time. And they, um, I just wanted to show you the top 10 amongst our sample of 248 participants. So the most um, prevalent living difficulty that people report is worry about refugees and asylum seekers being how they're presented in the media. Um, that's 62% of the sample are saying that this is a significant or very significant problem for them. I guess this is very interesting, it was interesting to us and somewhat surprised us. This was the most significant living difficulty reporting. But it does highlight the salience of this particular stress and how incredibly distressing it can be for people. The second highest, um, most prevalent living difficulty was worry about family back at home. About 58% of the samples suggested that being fearful of being sent back to the country of origin was a very significant problem for them. 57% reported not being able to find work was a significant living difficulty. Half of the sample suggested that practical difficulties with accessing or undertaking study was a significant problem. Sixth on the list was boredom. Seventh was difficulties with the family reunification process. 48% suggested not having enough money was a significant problem. Um, 46% said that being fearful of being sent to an Australian detention or an offshore processing facility was a very significant problem for them. And 10th on the list was not being allowed to apply for a permanent visa. You know, obviously some of these factors are interrelated with one another. And as the study continues, we will be able to understand how these factors hug together and influence mental health and well-being over time. So just bring it back to our initial slide, our research so far is telling us that past traumas, like torture, can have an indelible impact on the brain and the neural systems responsible for processing fear. And at the same time, refugees and asylum seekers are experiencing significant post-migration living difficulties in Australia, many of which are fear-based and related to anxieties, uncertainties about the future. These salient worries are often reported, reported to us as being even worse than the previous traumatic experiences. So how these factors are interacting to influence mental health and brain function will be the subject of our future investigations. I'm just going to hand over to Richard to finish.
1: And just to sort of give you a heads up in terms of where we're going in the next few years with this line of research is, we do need to develop better treatments. So even though we're doing these very large-scale things in the Middle Eastern Europe, um, even in terms of what we do here in Australia, Um, We still know that the refugees are not responding as well to our treatments. And so we are needing to develop better treatments that we can do here in our clinics. So we're doing treatment trials um, to try to understand, you know, how we can actually get better responses. We are needing to go and continue to understand better the neural pathways and whereas up to now we've been looking very much at the neural pathways associated with the, the problems and the dysfunctions that are associated with refugees, what we really need to move on to is what are the neural pathways that we need to understand that's going to promote resilience? What are the, the neural pathways that are going to help recovery and to help um, our treatment planning? Because this is how we're going to come up with more novel, more tailored interventions that can actually help out where the refugees apparently aren't deficient in terms of why they're not responding to the treatments we've currently got. We also know that the disproportionate number of refugees around the world are under 18. And this is something again that we there is very very little work going on in terms of understanding at these critical developmental phases through childhood and adolescence. And this is critical in terms of cognitive, academic, social, linguistic development. We need to understand how does an adolescent navigate through the whole refugee experience? So we're, we're partnering with high schools in Western Sydney um, that are, have very dense refugee populations and doing uh, numerous studies with them um, to try to understand what are the mechanisms, psychological, social, etc cetera, that are actually um, pre- uh, underpinning how these refugee youth are actually navigating through the school system, how they're actually adapting um, culturally, how they're adapting psychologically and socially. And finally, we, we actually, as, as Belinda just said, we are following up on the, the long-term um, adjustment study. Because even though that 250 seems like a big number, it's actually not. We need much bigger numbers, and we need refugees over a much longer time frame. If we can really sort of map out what are the trajectories over time? What are the factors that differentiate these people who are resilient, these people having problems? And critically, what are the points at intervention where we really need to come in at a policy level but also at a clinical level to actually try to enhance the resilience and decrease the problems? So I think we've caught up on time. So I'll stop there and I'll hand it back to you, it.